0: Welcome back to Park Street Dialogues. My name is Mark Booker, and I serve as the senior minister at Park Street Church in downtown Boston. We've been on a hiatus for about a year, but are bringing back an episode today that we recorded uh, about 13 months ago with Roberto Miranda. Roberto died suddenly on Saturday night, May 21st. I'm recording this on Thursday May 26th and it, this was a, a shocking loss for the kingdom community in the city of Boston Roberto was a bold and courageous leader humble and generous man a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus and the church that he led line of Judah in the South End has had a tremendous impact on our city through through Roberto's leadership so in honor of His memory and in honor of all that God did in and through this dear brother, we wanted to put this episode back on the top of our feed and encourage people to listen in as a way of just getting to hear Roberto's heart and understanding a bit more of who he was and of the legacy that he leaves uh, to the rest of us as we carry forward the work of gospel ministry in the city of Boston. We will come back as a podcast with further episodes in the weeks and months ahead Uh, But enjoy this conversation with Roberto Miranda from a year ago. How did you end up in Boston?
1: Well, I came to Boston to do my PhD at Harvard in Romance Languages and Literatures. That was back in 1979. Wow. And not having any suspicion of... uh, Ending up uh, as a full time pastor. Really, my desire was to go into academia and you know do research and hopefully publish, um, get deeply involved in my field, which was Spanish American literature specifically. Mm. Um, but I really wanted to spend my life uh, doing academic stuff, and so that's why I, I uh, came to Harvard in in seventy nine. And uh, in that process, got involved with a new church that was uh, just uh, starting in the South End at the Emmanuel Gospel Center. We're talking about mm-hmm. 1982. Wow. Yeah, um, um, I, I had um, I had studied here in the Boston, the Greater Boston area before. That I had fell in love with a, uh, fallen in love with Boston, mm. and I just, mm. you know wanted to return to New England, and so. Um, you know the Lord had a plan, the Lord had a plan in my life. I knew that he had called me to do some kind of work in his sphere. Mm-hmm. I saw it more being along the lines of being a Christian academic, infusing my Christian sensibility into the work that I would be doing mm-hmm. and uh, using that as my my way of serving God but I think god God had other evidently he mm-hmm. had other plans, <laughs> and it was all pretty much a journey that I've been following mm-hmm. until now. Um, oh, wow. And I've seen his hand you know, very coherently leading me mm-hmm. step by step. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, when I was at uh, my second year here at Harvard, actually my first year even, God began to do a revolution in my life. And uh, I experienced a huge personal revival. Mm. And um, I, I became very thirsty for the things of God. Actually, that threw me into a spiritual crisis, and I had to leave the school for a year. Oh, wow. Kind of a desert year to get my head together, Mm -hmm. really decide what I wanted to do in my life, and so on and so forth. Um, You know, and out of that, uh, the Lord led me to this church that uh, was having its second service, actually, in uh, the Emmanuel Gospel Center. It was a Spanish church planted Mm -hmm. by a gentleman named Juan Vergara. He started that church, and... um, I started attending. Long story of how I got to know the church. But I went to his second service and um you know out of that uh really the Lord started preparing me. He uh he was a, a master church planter and uh through a um missionary uh Ralph Key, who's still around, Ralph Key is a saint of the city uh he alerted us to a property in Cambridge that was had opened up a church had uh, died out there and um they they had given the the church property including a a uh, property for uh, the the pastor to live in and they donated it to the denomination Ralph Key connected juan vergara that was his last name juan vergara to this property, and we moved to Cambridge only six months into the work there in at the Emmanuel Gospel Center. And, um, you know, we started our journey there in Cambridgeport. And um, a few months after he was there, l- long story again, he had to m- move back to Puerto Rico with mm-hmm. his wife. And he said, uh, by that time I was very involved in the work, and he said, Roberto, I, I have nobody to leave the, the church to. You know, there's about 50 people at that point in the wow. in the congregation, and he said, "I would you just hold the fort until you know we find a pastor." And at that point, we didn't really have anyone. We couldn't even think of anyone that could who could take uh, over the church. We had very little money to pay for them, and didn't have many relationships with any denomination and so on. So I said, "Yes, I'll do that." You know, and so I, uh, while I was doing my graduate work, I started. Um, pastoring the church, doing whatever I could. And, you know, the church kept growing. The Lord really kept uh, blessing it. And, um, you know, out of that emerged an invitation from that congregation that had now grown somewhat. In 1985, this is 84 when Juan Vergara left to go back to Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. About a year into my own tenure there, the congregation said, hey, if you want to become our pastor, we would love to have you. And uh, I accepted. The Lord had been working my heart at that point. And right. he, I just knew that He uh, He was calling me into full-time pastoral ministry and understanding also what it would, you know, what that would take in terms of sacrificing my own wow. dreams and so on. Yeah. And so I, I decided to accept the invitation. In '86, I was ordained with the actually Conservative Baptist Home Mission Society. Mm and uh here i am you know 30s (laughs) i I was that was 84 yeah so 36 years uh and 38 years into my journey with the church itself so it's been a very interesting very textured walk
0: can you tell us more about the year that you took off at harvard what was it that was moving you so much that you felt like you needed to step out of your program
1: yeah i called it as i say uh, kind of a desert year um, it, it was a time when, you know, and I've had those times. I think when the Holy Spirit is working in your life and big changes are about to take place, mm. I mean, I think you intuit it. You, you feel that something is happening inside of you. There's a turmoil when we are in those periods where God is doing things. By the way, I feel I'm in that period right now in my own life as mm. well. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it has happened on several occasions. You, you feel this restlessness. I, I felt... um I, you know I, I felt that God was wanting to do something in my life. I wasn't sure what it was i uh I started questioning even whether you know literature was the the my the way I wanted to go that was before actually i fully you know entered into the ministry mm-hmm. and um so that was one one thing i I was not happy with my secular studies as much um I was feeling this call from God. I was feeling this yearning for more spiritual depth and more dedication to the Lord. And just a couple of, you know, many things that came together. My father had died, by the way, unexpectedly, Mm -hmm. a couple of years before that. And that had thrown me into a spiritual crisis. That was right before I came to Harvard. And uh, I I think it was a, a delayed reaction to many different, those different things. I couldn't explain why, but I knew that I had to take some time off. And interestingly, you know, the, the Lord um, led me in in the strangest sort of way—too long to tell—to work for the Department of Social Services, which is now Ch- Children and Families, it's called. Yeah. But at that time, it was DSS mm-hmm. in Lawrence, while I was living there with my family in that time of waiting. And I had about eight months of work in the Department of Social Services, working with Latino families that were in crisis. Wow. And. Um, I had twenty families, uh, twenty cases under my charge, and I was supposed to visit them regularly and, uh, you know, follow up on their needs, uh, develop treatment plans for them, you know, mm-hmm. accompany them to court, and all kinds of stuff. And um, during during that time, the Lord was preparing me for what eventually would be the pastorate, because working with these families, following up on them, getting to know the, their intimate lives. Uh, sharing the gospel with them, supervising them over the course of a certain, you know, period of months and so on. I, I think the Lord, in his own gentle, coherent way, was preparing me for for pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was a great, great introduction.
0: So you jumped into the church and essentially started leading it as a volunteer,
1: you know I went through a lot of the different stages of the church. I I did worship. There was a period of doing worship, <laughs> youth ministry. I was a deacon. I did some Sunday school teaching. I um, every once in a while taught on Wednesday nights. So I was getting all the pieces of you know the the work that I would do as a pastor. But I yeah. had not done was Sunday preaching. Yeah. But uh, you know. So again, I, I I've seen how through all of these different things, even mm. coming to New England. Uh, being here in the Boston area, going through that process of uh, how I how I met Juan Vergara and you know uh, how I started attending the church. I met my wife there uh, mm. just a few months into the work um, in uh, in uh, the Emmanuel Gospel Center. I mean everything. I see clearly a line mm. leading to that point when when I would become you know the the uh, pastor of the church and yeah. God preparing me in all those different yeah. pieces of pastoral ministry. And even the work as a social worker as well. Yes. Being a part of that whole journey.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In those early years, what were some of the things about the church that you thought, this is what makes this church unique or what God is doing in this church? And then I'd be curious to hear how that has shifted over time.
1: Mm-hmm. The church began, uh, what was then called, Iglesia Bautista Central, or Central Baptist Church, that was the name of the Mm -hmm. church at that time. Um, The church began as a very traditional Baptist congregation. Juan Vergara, the founder, was a very more of a conservative kind of Baptist uh, Mm -hmm. preacher and and pastor, and so the church had a was very much very traditional in that sense. And then, around 19, uh, I would say 1990, or so, um, I I call it I brushed against the Holy Spirit. I visited an African-American church in uh, San Francisco. Then something happened to me there during that service, which to this day I cannot uh, explain Mm. well. But I knew I was touched. But when I came back from that uh, experience, I shared with the congregation that God had done something in my life, that I I wanted us to pursue a closer walk with the Holy Spirit. And uh, so I started uh, sharing more with the church about the gifts of the Spirit. Really, a lot of it mainly theory, because I had never really practiced as much mm-hmm. the gifts uh, or the Pentecostal mode, so to speak. But we we started a journey as a church, uh, pursuing more of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, gr- some interesting things began to happen. I mean, the Lord started to move. Some of the more conservative members of the church who had founded, actually, had, had found the church with one, um, began feeling uh, threatened by the kind of people that were now coming into the church, more charismatic more pentecostal mm-hmm. they they began they became a little bit threatened also about the form of the worship um, It was longer, it was more intense, more spontaneous um, worship sometimes would go on the the service became more unpredictable and uh, so uh, they you know it, it started a very tense period and uh i saw where that was going really i saw that uh, these individuals were extremely godly people they were some of the best members of the church they were steady columns of the church but they had that much more conservative understanding of the gospel and i knew that they were not going to change these 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 people had been hmm. you know of this conviction for all their life uh, at the same time, all of a sudden you have this influx because the church, as I say, had started growing now more yeah. quickly. Yeah. And uh, and I knew also that the Lord had called us into this, that this was not some sort of little whim and that that was not going to change. So I saw, I did the math, and I knew that at some point there was going to be a major conflict ahead. And, you know, what the Lord led me to do uh, was uh, to call the founding pastor who, by now, we're talking about he left in 84, and we're talking about 91 Mm-hmm. By then his circumstances had changed, and he found himself in Florida. And uh, and I knew that many of these godly conservative believers in the church, they had never forgotten about him. And uh, we had stayed in touch with him because we, I I often invited him to come and visit the church as a founder of the church to just keep that connection. And one day the Lord, I think it was the Lord, led me to call him and say, Juan, would you like to come to Boston and uh, start a church? <laughs> and um, you know, we will, we will issue a call, and anyone from the church that wants to go with you um, can go. Mm. and I knew what that meant. I, you know, I, this guy was a wonderful, wonderful preacher. He was vibrant. He was uh, you know, experienced. His wife was a pianist of the first sort, uh, mm-hmm. a professor at, a university, at the University of Puerto Rico, on and on. But I just felt that you know, the Lord was calling me to, to do that because I didn't want this, this to end in a break at the end. Yeah. And so I called him you know, over the phone. I, I still remember exactly what I was doing. I was washing dishes as I spoke to him <laughs> over the phone and um and he said what are you sure and i said yes i i I would like to invite you to come to boston we'll find a church building for you we will help you financially and let's start a church and uh let's invite you know those that want to leave to leave so long story a lot of texture that i I won't get texture that i won't get into but he came he came to boston he he started a church we we found a place in everett um and uh, we had about 20, 25% of the church leave, but it was about 20%. And uh, that was a, an interesting transition for me. It was a sad moment uh, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, uh, the funny thing is that after that, we had a, a brief period of uh, kind of aloneness and uh, grieving. Uh, no music because all the musicians had left together. <laughs> but a year after that, exactly about a year after, the Lord had brought in a a totally new crowd to come into the church. Mm. God started blessing us with uh, musicians mm-hmm. and singers uh, and to this day, you know Lion of Judah for the by the grace of God, has had wonderful worship. You know I think the Lord blessed us in such yeah. ways, and I think it was because partially we were willing to pay up front mm. I did not I, I wanted to those individuals who wanted to leave to leave to a nice environment where they had a pastor that they really appreciated, they loved, Mm -hmm. and for another church to be founded here in the Boston area that really uh, set us loose to do what was a major risk, take a major risk and a major jump Mm -hmm. was to leave that very nice, uh, uh, safe, elegant area of Cambridgeport right next to the Charles River Mm -hmm. and to go into one of the worst uh, neighborhoods at that time Mm -hmm. in Boston, which is the Roxbury, uh, you know, South End area at mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. So that goes along with what I'm telling you, that sometimes before great blessings mm. come these periods of great turmoil inside, and we don't know why, but God mm-hmm. is preparing us for you a know, next stage of things.
0: That's a good lesson. Did you wrestle, I, I'm sure you did, with the question of unity in that time where you had these two competing visions, and both sets loved God, loved Jesus, wanted to see his kingdom come. Even the way you just Mm -hmm. articulated it, I knew that God wanted this to take place.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, unity is an elusive thing, just like love. Um, And uh, those two concepts are right now under great uh, stress, and I think experiencing a lot of oversimplification. I think unity is something that requires um, affinity of uh, spirit. The Bible says, how shall two walk together Mm -hmm. if they're not in agreement? And we have examples, Paul and Barnabas over Mark, Decided to separate, and I, I think uh, there is a place when we come to a point where we both love God. Let's say uh, where two groups or individuals love God, they they have a love for the kingdom, but they are approaching things from different, you know, perspectives yeah. and method methodologically. Um, really, there's no not a lot of room mm. for that closeness of uh, working together. And I think at that point, really integrity. And I believe even uh, Christian love called us at that point to separate and to agree to continue working on behalf of the gospel, but to be free to do it in the way that God has mm-hmm. called us uh, to pursue it. And, uh, you know, sometimes God uses those moments actually to bless because, um, you know, out of that emerged uh, a strong church. Juan was a very, very mm-hmm. gifted, as I say, a minister, and out of that uh, emerged the church that is still standing out of that history. I love, too,
0: that your example in that of caring for the people that you didn't necessarily, that you weren't in the same track uh, or had the same perspective as, and ensuring that they were well-shepherded and cared for and being willing to absorb the the difficulty of that. Yeah, and that's I think that's where witness. love intervenes. And, yeah. Um,
1: I, I believe that we need to affirm each other yeah, um, in terms great. of our differences you know mm-hmm. there, there's such there's such richness in the in the body of Christ. Mm. there are believers who are very conservative in their outlook and in their methodology in uh, the way of seeing the the word and produce powerful influential churches mm. that bless the kingdom. Yeah. there are others who are more fiery more Mm-hmm. Enthusiastic in the way of looking at the kingdom, and they also have impact, and they reach a different mm-hmm. kind of crowd that mm-hmm. would not be reached by the other one mm-hmm. and I think we need to develop this uh appreciation for the richness of the kingdom of god, yeah, and uh that's where I think unity mm-hmm. you know in diversity mm-hmm. uh takes place. but I do believe that if we're going to work uh intimately with people uh they should be people who share mm-hmm. a certain foundational understanding of the gospel with us, you know. Uh, Because I think today what we're having uh, sometimes is uh, this idea that um, unity means that we just simply say yes to everything and uh, we include people from all kinds of uh, convictions into one single church. Mm. And uh, often what you have to do is then you have to dilute the gospel to the lowest common denominator because you don't want to rank all the different groups in there and I think ultimately that impoverishes uh, the gospel it impoverishes the capacity of a shepherd to speak the way that God has gifted them Mm -hmm. to do Uh, and so you know I I think that we need to be honest with each other and and find ways to coexist without necessarily Mm. sharing everything
0: Tell us about this transition into into the city.
1: Well, you know, one uh, after this after this uh, breakup had uh, taken place, one night I had a dream. I saw uh, slowly gliding over the skies the skyline of of Boston a swarm of giant uh, tarantulas, large enough to you know be like airplanes, really. Hmm. And they they silently slid over and settled over the skyline of uh, Boston. And I could see them pretty up close from where I was. And I saw that, um, uh, again, they were the size of airplanes. They were intelligent. They had eyes. They were full of uh, poison and venom. And it was like they were so full of poison that they were were bursting with with poison. Their skin was shiny. And... um, I knew that they were exercising influence over the city just by settling over it and hovering over it. Um, and as, as I said, I they, they knew that they were demonic entities exercising their demonic influence over the city. And then from the left-hand side of my vision, high above these, uh, these tarantulas, I all of a sudden became aware of a face of a lion looking down upon that scene and uh, just looking serenely over it and, you know, what impacted me about that lion was the eyes. They were very sure of themselves, very confident, full of uh, power, and they were, like, more human than animal. They were human eyes, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking down, and I knew that as he looked down upon that uh, scene, he was exercising ultimate control and ultimate authority, and and that he had uh, a sort of a sovereign understanding what why that was happening and what its ultimate end would be that he was managing it just by looking at it and uh, through from where i was standing at you know at a lower level and looking in the distance to that i pointed to the lion on the left hand side and i said in spanish three times tu eres el señor tu eres el señor tu eres el señor meaning you are the lord you are the lord you are the lord mm-hmm. then the dream uh, the, the dream ended but I knew in the morning that I had been exposed to something that had all kinds of meaning in it, and that it was not just a dream like any other dream. It was very vivid, very coherent, symbolically rich. Um, and the other thing is, is that I, I, I had never been occupied, really, about the Lion of Judah. <laughs> I knew from my reading of the Bible that it, what I was looking was the, the Lion of, of Judah. Um, but it had n- really never occupied my, my mind too much. And I also knew that the dream w- had a, a you know, symbolic content in it. And really, it was, it was downloaded to me mm. uh, yeah. you know, in, in, a, in a way that I can't explain. I knew that morning that um, God wanted us to move into the city of Boston. And I had never had any kind of desire to do that at all. Um, I knew that uh, God was calling us into spiritual warfare, in a, in a significant sort of way, I also understood that we would have some sort of connection with this image of Jesus as the Lion of Judah, and it's that, that military, martial, mm. uh, you know, confrontative dimension of uh, Jesus as well. I also knew, you know, again, that um, we were being called to have some connection with Israel that went beyond just the regular connections. This is why the church now is called Congregation Lion of Judah, Uh, number one, because I I put the word congregation before Lion of Judah instead of Lion of Judah congregation. It's Mm. because, you know, many Jewish uh, synagogues and so on, they usually say congregation Mm. whatever. And so I kept it that way. And I I, I called it congregation as opposed to church, Congregacion León de Judá, and Congregation Lion of Judah in English. Um, Because I want to sort of encode that uh, connection to Israel and to jewish culture which i still think that has somewhat to unfold more richly but i think we were also uh, being connected to the the tribe of judah as well which is about worship and Mm -hmm. and about um leading in warfare and so on and so forth so all of these different things were put into my spirit and um i shared with the congregation this dream and i told them that i felt that god was calling us to move from where we were and, you know, at that point, we had inherited this lovely, lovely 19th century building in uh, Cambridgeport, which is now occupied, by the way, by uh, Cambridgeport Baptist Church. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's where we were for, mm. you know, all those years. Mm-hmm. And um, so I uh, I knew that we had to move from there. Uh, and that's another story that I we, you know, we don't need to get into right now. But how the Lord led us to that building— where we, the first building, because we have now three buildings, a little campus there. That first building that we occupied in 68 Northampton Street, um, I started searching for a place and not having any money in the bank, not having any way of (laughs) buying property. I was just doing something crazy just by faith. Mm -hmm. And um, I was led a few months afterwards, and now we're talking about 93 Mm -hmm. at that point. Um, And uh, after searching, I was led to that building, that first building at 68 Northampton Street. And the funny thing is that I started negotiating with the owner of that building um, that had been closed for a long time, uh, and um, he had not been able to sell it. It was like a, an old warehouse at that point. The kitchen had been a kitchen cabinet exhibit center at some other point, but it was closed. And uh, I found out about it, I believe, in a prov- providential sort of way.
0: With the intent of fulfilling that dream. Yes, yes. Because you came here to do spiritual warfare, to be a presence for the kingdom in this. Can you say more about the thinking behind that?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I I, I felt that, um, you know, we needed to first, we wanted to, we needed to position ourselves closer to the Latino community that we served which was really in this area Jamaica Plain mm. Roxbury and so on and so forth mm-hmm. in Cambridgeport but we were we were so secluded there mm-hmm. number 2 i just felt that the lord uh, you know calling us to sort of position ourselves in a more visible area a place that we could uh, learn more about the city do more work do evangelistic work in the city mm-hmm. and uh, to tell you the truth i had no idea of how those pieces were going to unfold. I just knew that the fact that I had seen across the city, I had seen the city, mm-hmm. you know, threatened and influenced by these demonic powers. I, 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 my, my first instinctive understanding was: we need to move into the city, mm. and, we, and then you know the Lord would be That's continue great. to teach us what how, what to do. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, 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 we we did that. Once we were there, then the other pieces started unfolding. So, for example, I had never had a vision for. Uh, social ministry, mm. working in the community. I tell you, people think these days that, you know, Lion of Judah does all this kind of stuff in social ministry, and they think that I'm some kind of uh, theological, il- <laughs> you know, illuminated uh, But you person. were a social worker.
0: Uh, you, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> that is back true. in the That's, DNA. That
1: was prophetic as well. Yeah. Um, but no, I had no vision of, yeah. of uh, social ministry. I didn't understand about, you know, the call mm-hmm. to mingle the mm-hmm. gospel, to mingle the gospel with social and community work and, yeah. and uh, social impact, but the Lord started unfolding that as well. Once we moved in there, and we saw all the need around us, and things began coming to us. You know, pieces began coming to us. We started the the uh, higher education resource center with nothing, but the Lord has been attracting components of it. And today, you know, we we serve hundreds and hundreds, and have served thousands of youth over the yeah. past twenty years. In um, academic work, mm-hmm. with a witness of the gospel. Hmm. Right now, Lion of Judah, you know, serves uh, every year about five seven hundred students in the high school. It's amazing. We are in in eight high schools in the city. The city <laughs> invites us to come into their premises with uh, Christian, college educated mentors mm-hmm. who infuse all kinds of. Elements of the gospel as we teach high school students to be successful and to live by principles of, Mm. you know, success and purposeful living Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, And uh, we do all kinds of other stuff, you know, in academia uh, with uh, African American and Latino first uh, generation Mm -hmm. students. And so that whole area has been unfolding. We have an excellent uh, executive director, Sam Acevedo. Yeah. who uh, does great work. We work with a lot of uh, philanthropic foundations in the city, uh, the, some of the major ones. And we've done work with uh, uh, teaching in the area of uh, sexual abstinence um, with kids. We got a huge grant from the uh, federal government, which we managed for about seven years, and were able to reach thousands of students all over New England, Latino students in the area of abstinence. Um we have, uh, you know, done all kinds of uh, uh, work with, um, you know, uh, helping students in, in the city, you know, in academia as a whole. And mm-hmm. then we also started the um, uh, Alpha Ministry. It's a, an acronym for certain words in Spanish, uh, in immig- the immigration area. Mm-hmm. So we, we serve uh, before the pandemic, we were serving about 3,000 people a year in immigration services. Everything from translation of documents, accompanying people to immigration court, helping families to reunite, uh, preparing documents for them, uh, citizenship classes, uh, immigration advocacy work, Mm -hmm. a significant work that also involves a Mm multi-staff operation. They're working with philanthropic money as well. And uh, during the pandemic, Alpha uh, served literally hundreds of thousands of uh, meals to Latino families all over the region, um, yeah. with uh, cooperation with uh, World Vision mm-hmm. and actually other churches like uh, Grace Chapel, which has done mm-hmm. tremendous work helping us financially as well to get that mm-hmm. going. So we've done a lot of stuff on that. And, you know, we do a lot of work also with um, uh, people on the streets. We are at the epicenter you of are, the yeah. opioid crisis right there next to Boston Medical Center mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what's called the, you know, opioid. Uh, what is it? The mile. Methadone mile yeah. right there. I mean, we're two, two blocks from there. Mm-hmm. So we've inevitably been also pulled into doing work with uh, people in recovery. And uh, many of them visit the church on Sundays. And that has, you know, uh, given birth to a lot of work with, um, you know, people in, mm-hmm. uh, in addiction and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And we have a breakfast on Saturdays, for example, where dozens and dozens of uh, homeless people come over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a closed closet, which we actually worked in cooperation with uh, the Emmanuel Gospel Center. So there's a lot of stuff, really. Yeah. And none of it, I, we haven't initiated a single thing, uh, Mark, I have to tell <laughs> you. There's all the Lord bringing this yeah. to us because we were in the right location. That's amazing. You know,
0: What has God taught you personally as you've engaged in these social issues more and more? You said you didn't have a vision for it. You just said that God has led you into it, but what, is, what has he taught you about himself and about the work of the kingdom through that, that part of the work of your church?
1: Yeah, the fact I think that we cannot keep the gospel in four walls. I mm. think the, the gospel has to be taken out. I We have a treasure of understanding and of uh, gifting and of power. That uh, c- should not be contained within the four walls of the church, I mean uh, I-, I believe that secular man does not have the answer to the ills that affect society in our time, uh, no matter how much sociological knowledge uh, you know this city or other cities like New York or Chicago have mm-hmm. about um, drugs and about its origins and so on and so forth, you know they're they 're helpless. They are impotent right now. The opioid crisis is uh, eating up so much of our community. And this is no longer just the African-Americans or the Latinos. Now these are the sons of police chiefs and uh, corporate executives that are mm-hmm. being affected by uh, the drug uh, situation. And so it's reaching more and more of our city. Um, it's it's a big crisis. Um, we don't have the answer uh, for it, uh, and the church I think has and it 's a significant contribution to make because of its understanding of human nature, because of the god given interpretation that we find in the Bible of, of the human condition. Mm-hmm. I think we have to find ways to insert that that energy into the culture um, the our children i mean the, the the destruction I think the devastation that we see in our youth in our in our time. Mm. and in our children as well. Yeah. The corruption, uh, the sexual corruption mm. of our youth is extraordinary. And um, if anything, I think secular, the secular world is taking that in, and making it so much worse. And the church, I think, has the answer for that as well. It has an understanding of the, of the human being and how we have been constructed. And uh, we cannot keep that. We have to be desperate about finding ways to take this knowledge and this power that we have, And to bring it out into the streets and to bring it out into the community. So really, my big, big um, agony is, Lord, how can we do more? How can we, you know, get out there more, do more, for example, Mm. with the drug addicted, with the drug addicted, with the homeless, Mm. with all the neuroses that are affecting our city? How can the church be a voice Mm. in the city? How how can we, you know, get a microphone and get out there (laughs) and start doing more of the gospel in a practical sort Mm. of way, teaching the world that... We're more than just worshiping on a Sunday morning, then going home.
0: Mm. How has that changed your relationship with the city? How do you think the city views Line of Judah?
1: You know, I think it it views it very positively, despite the fact that we are a very conservative Mm. congregation on on social issues. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's funny, you know, that um, we have had a wonderful relationship with... uh, City officers over the, the many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, as I was told, you, I was telling you earlier before the interview that uh, we just had the privilege of celebrating uh, the inaugural service of Kim Janey, the new interim mayor, mm-hmm. at Lion of Judah, just this Friday. <laughs> and um, you know, it was a it was a request done by the city uh, to have the service there. I'm sure there's some excellent, excellent churches that would have been equally or better venues for something as significant as the inaugural service of the first African-American, first woman mayor mm-hmm. in the city of Boston. But they they asked us to have it held there. And I think that says something about you know how people see Lion of Judah as a church that um, is very invested in the city. Just before that, uh, four days before, we had had... Uh, a clinic, a vaccination clinic, where close to 200 people were vaccinated uh, in one of our facilities in cooperation with the Whittier Street uh, Health Center. Mm. And, um, you know, when things like that happen, uh, the city sees that we're not just about saying no, we're not just about, you know, denying Mm -hmm. and uh, criticizing, um, but that we're also about offering constructive elements you know, to the, the the drama of the city. And I think that generates a lot of uh, goodwill. We mm-hmm. have had wonderful relationships with all the mayors in the past uh, years. You know, with Mayor Menino, we had a delightful, delightful relationship. And he was a patron of Lion of Judah <laughs> in many ways. Um, with uh, Marty Walsh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful relationship as well. With Charlie Baker, his, actually his inaugural service, his first inaugural service was held at Lion of Judah about, mm-hmm. it must have been six years ago something like that, mm-hmm. uh, six, seven years ago. And um, so, you know, I say all of that just simply to say that we do, we we believe that it is a privilege, that it's something that we pursue when we do work with uh, the, the phila- phila- philanthropies in the city. Yeah. And with the city of Boston, uh, which gives us money to do work as well. We've done, we've done English as a second language uh, classes mm-hmm. and all kinds of other stuff. All of this, you know, it just intertwines us mm-hmm. with the city. And uh, I believe that they see us as a partner, you know, mm-hmm. for the glory of God, really. Mm-hmm. And it requires a certain tension. Believe me, yeah. uh, you know, you walk in tension. I have people who tell me, how can you allow so-and-so to come to the church to give a greeting You know, we had Senator Warren, for example, come years ago when she was running for president. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I I got it from some members of my church. Pastor, how can you allow that Jezebel to come? You know, they use those terms sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I think, you know, we have a duty uh, to hear these people and to have them come and to get to know us and Mm -hmm. to see what we are made out of, to come into this holy space and, and to experience our worship to listen to our preaching, and uh, to maybe have some stereotypes of the kind of people that we are torn yeah. down. Mm. So yeah, I, I think it's a you know it, it's a privilege. As I say, it's a tense thing for a Latino conservative Pentecostal, mm. very conservative on certain issues of sexuality and so on, yeah. to have these individuals come in. But it is a it's a duty. And I think it's also a great honor and a great privilege. And, mm-hmm. and if we're going to have any kind of influence on the world out there, hmm. we will have to walk those tense <laughs> uh, spaces uh, and then commit us, uh, ourselves to the grace of God. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, as you know, whenever the church throughout history has been called to exercise major influence in society, it is also forced to go into those um, yeah. tense uh, situations and you know, sometimes even engage in inconsistency. But we have this gracious God who gives us an impossible <laughs> task and who also understands that, you know, that's, that's just the nature of things. Hopefully, mm-hmm. we, we will stay as close as possible to the center. Mm. It's such an word.
0: inspiring story about how God has used this congregation to to really manifest his glory and to bear his presence into places of darkness and pain in the city. Clearly, what an incredible impact Herc has had and Alpha has had. And these, these are amazing ministries. So thanks be to God for that witness.
1: Amen. As I said, all of that has been thrust upon us. Uh, Yeah. We have not sort of initiated anything, so I can't Mm -hmm. take credit for it. I think when when a church opens itself up to the leading of the Holy Spirit and is willing to take risks and to pay up front, Mm -hmm. you know, God comes in and does extraordinary things. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: You have been leading in the church in Boston for decades now. Can you tell us your perspective on the church in this city? And what do you think are the opportunities that we have as a more more broadly as the body of Christ, and what do you think are some of the greatest challenges that we face?
1: I think we need to be humble um, with respect to each other. Uh, we need to put ego aside. We need to put uh, the name of our church aside mm. and to know that as we seek just to honor the Lord and to make us uh, make of ourselves servants, um, God will ultimately honor us. But that's what go- that's what's going to make possible the collaboration that is required. Uh, we each have our own, you know, distinctives and the things that we appreciate and require. Whether it's social justice or um, you know theological orthodoxy or a way of worshiping, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, we have to find those common elements of the gospel that allow us to exercise positive influence on, on the city and to hold those in suspense um, while we engage in the work of the kingdom. So, because I think that often um, there are all kinds of, there, there are wounds, uh, there are preferences that keep us uh, from becoming an effective force and be, from becoming a, a united. Force. So I think the first thing that we need to do is simply to put aside any kind of uh, aspiration to personal glory or ministerial glory mm-hmm. and uh, to offer ourselves, you know, for the gospel. And I think number two, I, I think we need to, you know, make overtures to get together, to break bread, to, to get to know each other, to take each other out to lunch individually or to come together as groups as well. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, I spend a lot of time doing stuff that has not to do, nothing to do with Lion of Judah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, thankfully, the church has given me that freedom to do that. But I, often I wonder, man, am I taking too much time from the church mm-hmm. to meet with so-and-so, to go to a certain meeting, to participate in a, in a... I cannot tell you even this week how many things I do that have very little to do with the church itself. But I believe that that is what the Lord has called me, mm-hmm. that if I take care also of the kingdom, he will take care of my own congregation. Mm. So I think pastors need to spend time getting to know each other, participating in uh, collective activities of the church, um, praying together, um, attending joint services, um, because I think that's the only way in in, in those gatherings and those efforts, God speaks and uh, provides the kind of uh, collaborative ventures that enable the church to have the impact that it needs to have. So I think, yeah, being being humble, uh doing things just for the glory of God, mm-hmm. investing time in kingdom activities as opposed to local congregational activities. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, just praying that, that that unity will take place. Uh but you know, I, I've I've derived a huge amount of benefit from mm-hmm. getting out there and working with um with mm-hmm. my fellow pastors and mm-hmm. engaging in all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: What about our challenges? I presume the opposites of the the things that you just encouraged us to. But when you when you look at Boston in twenty twenty one, what do you see in terms of the challenges that 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 we as the church face in the city?
1: You know, I I believe that one of the biggest challenges that we face um, is to remain tethered to the faith once given to the saints. I I believe that the church in America as a whole, not just Boston, but Boston being such an intellectual, academic city, Hmm. faces that challenge, you know, unlike unlike many, many other churches uh, in America. Um, You know, we, we are being... We live in a society that is so committed to social justice, and uh, to you know human rights and uh, to a radically different understanding of sexuality, for example, mm-hmm. and, and of the, even of the gospel, and that is very militant about its understanding, that the more uh, orthodox believers uh, feel tempted to give up our distinctives in order to make our churches more attractive to Mm -hmm. the outside culture. We want them to come in. We want them to see the church positively. We want them to visit our churches. We want to be evangelistically attractive to them. And I think the tendency these days is to dump down the gospel, to mute the demands of uh, the holiness uh, of the Word of God and um, just to become more, you know, neutral what we have to offer, to not preach sermons that are too specific, that uh, run the risk of being alienating to the people who visit, um, that will not rankle certain elements of the church, that see things in a certain way. And I think that what that produces is a gospel that is very, very weakened, um, and that produces exactly the opposite result of what we want. Mm. we feel that by doing these things, by uh, lowering the specificity of the church, that somehow we will be more attractive. And I think it's the very opposite. Mm. We have to yeah. lead from the inside. I think we have to mm. lead from the Word. We have to lead from our convictions. We have to lead from our trust that if we do the gospel the way God wants us to, God will take care of it. We may go through a period of time of uh, mm. you know um, uh, isolation or weakness vis-a-vis the world but in the end we will be strengthened by it and we have to trust the methodology we have to trust the system and so i think that one of the biggest challenges right now for so many churches in uh, boston and in america as a whole and new england uh, as a region is to you know we have to remain faithful we have to revisit some of those distinctives of the gospel we have to have times of prayer we have to seek revival we have to mm. seek a visitation of the lord again mm. um you know we have to seek the holiness of god without becoming pharisaic or you know mm. rigid mm. but i think in that is where revival is going to come again where god is going to visit us Is going to give us the power and then the results will come by themselves you know, but I, I think that is one of the biggest challenges to go back to that—that yeah, that, that faith, you know—that uh, uh, we, we have practiced
0: standing on the word. Yeah, we yeah. preach Christ crucified,
1: and doing it with grace. Yeah, with uh, generosity, mm-hmm. humility,
0: mm-hmm. and and then also I would add to that the the what you talked about about just the engagement in these social issues where you're making a real difference in the lives of our neighbors, yeah, whatever yeah, it is yeah. that they believe, whatever they think about Jesus, you're yes, loving yes. them sacrificially. <clears throat> and that's an amazing witness. And, uh, and then there's this challenge of still contextualizing the gospel in a new day, yes. in a new era, in a yes. new world where, yes. Yes. you know, the questions teenagers are, are asking are, are different. And I agree. How do we bring this timeless reality, uh, that transcends culture and time Into our culture. I mean, it's always the challenge of a missionary. It is
1: always a challenge. I think we need to ask the Lord for supernatural wisdom Mm. as pastors, to be able to speak to these issues with new uh, words, new terminology, more complex. um, Mm. But uh, again, delivering the gospel, maybe with a new uh, covering, uh, Mm -hmm. a new form Right. But keeping that essence of the gospel. Yeah. It is a big challenge. I think pastors today have to be sociologists, anthropologists, <laughs> psychiatrists, um, politicians. <laughs> you know, it's a very complex thing being a pastor, but we have to keep that content mm. always there. That's good.
0: Well, um, we probably need to start wrapping up. Let me mm-hmm. ask you a couple of final questions. Where is God speaking to you in scripture lately?
1: Funny you should ask that because we started uh, in January a. Uh, Reading of, uh, we challenged uh, the congregation to read the Bible in one year. Okay. So we uh, came up with the the U Version uh, Bible with uh, Nikki Gumbel's Hmm. reading the Bible in one year. Mm -hmm. You know, Nikki Gumbel Mm -hmm. is the pastor of, uh, I think it's Brompton. Holy Trinity Brompton. Holy Trinity Brompton in England. Yeah, and the founder of of the Alpha Course. Exactly. And uh, they have a wonderful, wonderful plan for reading the Bible in one year. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have about 160 people who took the challenge, and they're reading the Bible in a year. And I said, hey, you know, I'm inviting people. I'm telling them to read the Bible and so on, and I'm going to do it also. So I, I entered the, the challenge. I've read the Bible many times over the years, yeah, but I, I had never read it like that. And uh, through that, you know, uh, in the in the beginning stages, it goes through the Pentateuch. So I've had to read very systematically one day after the next Uh, all the the, the books that you kind of rush through at times and you read them (laughs) haphazardly. Mm. And, you know, uh, it has given me a a renewed understanding of uh, this holy God that Mm. we serve. Yeah. Um, This God that takes himself very seriously. Mm -hmm. This God who has an amazing love, an amazing capacity to love, but also is not to be tampered with, Mm -hmm. not to be taken lightly. I, I see the, the the deliberateness with which he uh, gave instructions. For example, for the building of the tabernacle, mm-hmm. and for each uh, utensil, for the the architecture, the the distribution of spaces, the materials, the colors, the the smells of the incense and the perfumes, and so on and so forth. And so I see this God that, um, as I say, takes himself very seriously, demands mm-hmm. holiness from mm-hmm. us. The man's great reverence, uh, great dedication to him. Jealous, he will not share his uh, glory and his worship with anyone. And uh, it has renewed my mm-hmm. call, you know, mm-hmm. to do the same—to mm-hmm. not take too many liberties mm-hmm. with him, mm-hmm. and to believe him when he says something, when he promises something. To not trust in, in, uh, you know, how big the challenge is, how large are the enemies that face us. If he has promised something, his integrity will lead him to deliver it to us. Mm. So over and over again, he says to them, you know, do not be afraid of these tribes that you're going to confront. I have promised you the land. I have given it to you. Serve me. Trust me. (laughs) Obey me. And, you know, I will give you the land. When they didn't obey or trust him, of course, you know, things fell apart. But um, I think, you know, that God has not changed.
0: Amen. You yeah. know Jesus Exodus. of course
1: in the gospel has made our understanding of that God more complex and more textured. It mm-hmm. has added other layers mm-hmm. of uh, dialogue, you know, within itself. Mm. But we cannot lose sight of this God who calls us to holiness mm. and to com- commitment yeah. to him. So that, that's really where I'm mm-hmm. at right now in terms of scripture that it's that's talking great. about to me.
0: One more question. What is one thing that you'd want to say? Maybe you've already said it so you just want to reiterate something, but to the whole church in this city. What would you say
1: to the church in Boston? It's not by power, it's not by might, (laughs) but by my spirit, says the Lord. Um, I think when we focus on on the fact that, um, you know, whatever results we are able to attain for our ministries and for the kingdom is done not in our own strength, not in our own righteousness, not in our own skills or intelligence, um, but... When we make ourselves empty vessels, uh, clean vessels that can contain the anointing of God, then many of the things that we struggle for and we wrestle with and we deform ourselves to obtain in ministry, they come to us spontaneously. And I think, you know, all that we've discussed here, uh, you know, through the years that I've been serving the Lord points to that. That's why I can, Mm -hmm. I don't think I could ever become proud Hmm. because I realized that everything that I have been able to accomplish and do in the continuity of this ministry has been despite myself, has been because the Lord has initiated all these things. And if anything, the only thing I've been able to do is to discern where he was moving and to align myself with that. Hmm. But it has been really because I've, you know, I've known that um, it is through his power, it is uh, through his wisdom, through his illumination. He is the God of instructions. Mm. And uh, as long as I keep close to him and I keep listening to him, uh, I, I will be I will be guided, you know, to the next stage of ministry. Mm. And so I think uh, that that would be my call. That in the midst of all of our sophistication and all our theological complexities mm. and the complexities of our ministries and our desire to do social justice work and city work and to reach a twenty first century culture. That we understand that this is such a large task that we cannot accomplish it by ourselves. it has to be through the spirit of God the closeness to him and intimacy and prayer and fasting and seeking hmm. uh, his uh, guidance
0: and I presume that's what's kept you on this path for all these decades
1: absolutely with all kinds of you know stumbling and hmm. uh failing and um mistakes and mm-hmm. believe me it, it hasn't been a lineal linear journey either <laughs> uh but yeah, I think so. I think that that's what kept me going because I know, I've known that even in doing, the, in those moments of uh, failure, I am already fulfilling a, a very biblical paradigm, which is that weak men, you know, um, a very imperfect men were the ones that got used as long as mm. they kept themselves humble, mm. acknowledging his holiness, acknowledging their failures and listening oh. from him and following him obediently. So, yeah.
0: it's great, Roberto. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed our conversation, Mark.
0: What a joy it is to re-listen to the wisdom and the humility and the insight of Roberto Miranda. Uh, I thank God for his leadership and example, for his friendship, for... His unselfishness and humility in leadership in the city and uh, for the way in which he, he genuinely sought after the Lord and, and sought to do his will faithfully. Uh, a life very well lived and I am confident that Roberto receives the well done good and faithful servant from the Lord that he received that this past Saturday night. We indeed will miss him greatly in this city uh, but long to carry forward the heart and vision and commitment that he had to exalting Jesus in the city of Boston and to letting God lead us through the power of the Holy Spirit and not through our own wisdom or our own gifts. Be encouraged uh, that uh, there are brothers and sisters in the city who love the Lord like Roberto did and who are seeking his face as Roberto did and that God will continue to work in and through us as we seek to walk together in unity across churches in the city and, and do the work that God has set before us. We will, as I said at the beginning, come back with additional episodes on Park Street Dialogues. Thanks for listening in uh, on this conversation from a year ago with Roberto.